you're listening to a podcast from St. Benedict's Table, a congregation of the Anglican Church of Canada, located in Winnipeg, Manitoba. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts be acceptable and pleasing in your sight, O God, for you are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Our gospel reading for this evening is taken from partway through the first chapter of Matthew. That chapter opens with a long list of names tracing the genealogy of Jesus. At St. Ben's, we use a standardized cycle of scripture readings called a lectionary, and although most of scripture is included in the lectionary, there are some sections that have been left out. Genealogies usually don't make the cut, and this one is no exception. Now you may be thinking, Thank goodness. Who wants to read a long, boring list of impossible-to-pronounce names anyway? But the original writers of the scriptures thought differently. The Gospels weren't composed on computers or in a world where paper was cheap and easily accessible. Writers like Matthew were careful not to waste a single word. These names weren't included as filler. They were considered to be very important. They were included for a reason. In this section of the gospel, Matthew is giving us Jesus' origin story. And for Matthew, this means letting you know who Jesus' ancestors were. It's essential information for understanding who Jesus is. Jesus' genealogy lets us know who he is by telling us who he is related to. Jesus is related to a lot of traditionally important figures like King David, but he's also related to a lot of colorful characters who didn't always adhere to societal conventions in Israel's history. Matthew includes them all. The authors of the Collegeville Bible Commentary describe it this way. The linear progression of 39 male ancestors is broken at four points by the names of women. They are not the ones who would immediately come to mind as great figures of Israel's past. Each has an unusual twist to her story. Tamar, after being widowed, took decisive action to coerce her father-in-law Judah to provide an heir for her. She conceived Perez and Zerah, who continued the Davidic line. Tamar is the only woman in Hebrew scriptures who is called righteous, a term that is of central importance to Matthew. Rahab, a prostitute in Jericho, risked disobeying the orders of the king of Jericho and sheltered spies from Jericho to reconnoiter the land. She subsequently gives birth to Boaz, the great-grandfather of David. Ruth, a Moabite woman, returned with her mother-in-law Naomi to Bethlehem rather than stay with her own people after her husband died. In Bethlehem, Ruth presented herself to Boaz at the threshing floor and conceived Obed, who carried forth the Davidic line. Finally, Bathsheba, the wife of Uriah, is the one who bore David's son Solomon after David arranged to have Uriah killed in battle. Each story speaks of how women took bold actions outside the bounds of regular patriarchal marriage to enable God's purpose to be brought to fruition in unexpected ways. Not only were the circumstances unusual, but some of these women were also outsiders to Israel. Remembering their stories prepares us for the extraordinary circumstances of Jesus' birth and the salvation he will ultimately extend to those outside Israel. And the commentary writers say, the women's presence in the midst of the male ancestors of Jesus also signals the integral role that women play in the community of Jesus' followers. They remind their readers that women are not marginal to the history of Israel or of Christianity. At the time of our gospel story, however, 
Jesus has not been born and therefore hasn't been added to the list, the last name on this genealogy would be Joseph. Joseph, whose life has just been turned upside down by some unexpected news. Joseph, who needs to make a decision about what to do next. Tonight's gospel reading began, Now the birth of Jesus the Messiah took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been engaged to Joseph, but before they lived together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. This was not part of the deal. Mary should not have been pregnant at all, but if she did become pregnant, then Joseph should be the father. And Joseph was educated enough to know how babies are made and that if the Holy Spirit was involved, she was involved in an abstract way. A human male was also required. This was definitely not his baby, and Mary's story about the Holy Spirit seems sketchy at best. So what to do? First, you might be thinking, well, this is a tough situation, but it's not really a big deal. They weren't married after all. They were only engaged, and people break off engagements all the time. And while it may be more common now to break off an engagement than it was in Joseph's day, that doesn't make it any less painful for the people involved. Additionally, our understanding of what an engagement is has changed over time. The dating scene in first century Palestine looked a lot different than it does today. The patriarchs of two families would come together and make an agreement that their children would be married. After that agreement was reached, a marriage was a two-step process. The first step included a legally binding ceremony that took place in front of witnesses. This step is sometimes translated into English as an engagement. The bride would return to her father's home for another year or so, and then another ceremony would take place where she was formally transferred from the care of her father to the care of her husband. How romantic. Tonight's story takes place in between these two stages. Although they don't live together yet, Mary and Joseph are legally married, and everyone knows it. Joseph can't simply break off an engagement. If he wants to end his relationship with Mary, he needs to divorce her. And divorce has never been an easy or a simple thing, but it was different in Joseph's time than ours. If Joseph divorces Mary, there will be judging eyes and wagging tongues. His life will not be easy, and he will likely be the subject of gossip and social isolation, at least for a period of time. But the road will be a lot harder for Mary. And Joseph knows this, and he has compassion for her. As a righteous man who wants to remain faithful to what he understands to be God's law, he must divorce Mary. But if he does, the same law says that Mary must die. The law is clear. Mary is pregnant, and Joseph is not the father, therefore she has committed adultery, therefore she must die. And Joseph doesn't want that to happen either. He doesn't want to be married to her anymore, but he doesn't want her to die. But his choices are limited, and so Joseph decides that he will divorce Mary quietly. He can't divorce her secretly because people already know they are married and two witnesses are required for a divorce to be legally recognized, but he can divorce her and refuse to give a reason why. There won't be a trial and Mary and her child will be allowed to live. She will most certainly be socially ostracized, but she and her child will be allowed to live. The only way for Mary and her child to avoid public shame would be for Joseph to complete the second step of the marriage and adopt Mary's unborn child. And even then there will be talk. 
Most people are able to do some basic math, and the dates of their marriage and the birth date of this child will not add up to a respectable number. And Joseph isn't prepared to remain in this marriage. He is not prepared to adopt Mary's child. But before we judge him too harshly, think back to that genealogy that Matthew opens this chapter with. Forget everything you know about our modern blended families, how beautiful they can be, how they prove that it takes more than biology to create a family. Forget all of that and try to imagine a time when family meant something different. Imagine a time when a genealogy was so important that you would use precious and limited resources to write it down. A time when you assumed people would think that a list of names was important enough that they would want to read it. A time when who you were was determined by who your father was. Try to imagine Joseph, a man soaked in that culture, a man who wanted to do the right thing. Imagine him coming to terms with the idea that everything he had hoped for, had planned for, had worked for, is now gone in an instant because of someone else's choices. He knows beyond a shadow of a doubt that it's not his fault that Mary is pregnant, and that pregnancy will change his life no matter what he decides to do, because now he can never be Joseph, that righteous and respectable man with the perfect family. From now on, he will either be Joseph, whose first marriage failed, or Joseph, who adopted that bastard child. He has not planned on any of this. He had planned on a life with Mary that would have included a biological son whose name would appear after his in the family genealogy. And this is so important. Joseph lives in a patriarchal culture where it is incredibly important to have a firstborn son. The firstborn son inherited your property. The firstborn son carried on your family line. It was their name that appeared on the genealogy after yours. And while Matthew shows us that Jesus' family tree will include a wide cast of characters, Joseph isn't likely thinking that way at this particular moment. He likely doesn't want to stand out. He probably wants to blend in. Quietly divorcing Mary was the most sensible and compassionate thing he could do in order to try and get his life back on track. But then, life throws Joseph another surprise. After having made his decision to quietly divorce Mary, an angel appears to him in a dream. The angel assures Joseph that the impossible is indeed possible. Mary is blameless, and her child is from God. There's no need to fear. There is no need to divorce. Yes, it's unusual. Yes, there will be difficult times ahead. And yes, the neighbors will probably whisper behind his back for years to come. But the angel makes it clear that Joseph is not out of step with God's plan if he remains with Mary and adopts her child. In fact, this is exactly what God wants him to do. And Joseph does as he is told. He honors his marriage commitment, and he adopts Mary's son as his own. Tonight we're looking closely at Joseph's story, but over the next few weeks, as we continue to walk through Jesus' origin story in more detail, Notice how many of these stories include people whose plans are interrupted by unexpected circumstances. When was the last time you knew how something in your life was going to turn out, only to be surprised by an unexpected sequence of events that changed everything? What was that like? How did you respond? 
What did you learn from that experience? At the risk of tying this story into a neat little bow, I like to imagine that one thing Joseph learned from this story is that the safe and respectable road is not always the best road to follow. Joseph is a background figure from here on in the gospel story, but I like to imagine that his life with Mary was a happy one, that he loved Jesus as if he was his own son, and that he continued to care more about what God thought of him than what his neighbors thought of him. Now, one final thing I want to make note of. If you've been coming to St. Ben's for any length of time, you'll know that we take the practice of Advent very seriously. In simple terms, Advent is a way of slowing down the story of Jesus' birth. We take four weeks to focus on waiting for his arrival. The manger is empty. We don't sing Christmas carols because we are not going to acknowledge that Jesus has been born until Christmas Eve. So did tonight's gospel strike you as a little bit odd? Did you notice that we cheated a little bit? I mean, the reading begins, now the birth of Jesus the Messiah took place in this way and ends with, until she had born a son and named him Jesus. And we just read it, and I've just been preaching about it like it was Christmas Eve or something. What's going on? Okay, so we cheated a little bit, but I think we can get away with it, both because it's really important to hear Joseph's story and because Matthew really buries the lead in his account of Jesus' birth. Although the story begins, now the birth of Jesus took place in this way, Matthew literally does not include a single actual detail about Jesus' birth. We hear about his genealogy, we hear about Joseph's decision-making process, and we hear that at some point, in some way, Jesus was in fact born. Matthew cares about who Jesus is. The details of his birth are unimportant. Well, they're unimportant to Matthew. But scripture does contain more details of the events surrounding Jesus' birth, and in a few days on Christmas Eve, we will all gather again to retell that ancient story together. And I hope you'll join us when we do. In the name of our loving God, who creates, redeems, and sustains. Amen. You've been listening to a St. Benedict's Table podcast. For more information on our church or to provide support for our online work, visit us at stbenedictstable.ca.